0: Hey, welcome to another episode of Affordable Housing and Real Estate Investing. I'm your host, Kanti, And today, we're starting a little mini series about how to become an affordable housing developer. Now, when I first got started into real estate, there was all this terminology that I never understood. but. Thankfully, today we have Alvin Hope Johnson, who is one of our guests from a previous episode. Alvin and I have launched a consulting company that is really trying to remove the fear for newer folks and aspiring developers to become developers. That's it. So that you don't have to be afraid and feel like you are being left alone on an island all by yourself because this world of development is so small. So we're starting this series to want to give you the information, the education, and all this content so you don't have to be nervous entering this world. Now, we're going to get into very, very specific terminology so that you can understand exactly what people are talking about if you were to ever enter into a conversation about real estate development. This will hopefully prepare you for that development path whenever you may choose to pursue it And I think this is really exciting because there's really not much content out here that really talks about all the words and all the different phrases and terminology and the people that you need on your team to become a successful real estate developer. Now, if you're interested in becoming a developer, please make sure you DM me on Instagram at Invest with investwithkentee, that's K-E-N-T-H-E, and make sure you leave a question in the comments if you have any sort of questions that relates to development that you would like us to answer in a future podcast episodes so please subscribe to our podcast leave a comment in the youtube video below don't forget to dm me on instagram and we're just trying to make this information available to you on all platforms so we really appreciate you can share this podcast with any of your friends or family that are interested in real estate all right let's get into the highlight and then on with the conversation your grading plan comes
1: from your topo because it tells you to cut and fill drainage area map Water plan, erosion plan, and all those things, all of those come in on the beginning of the planning process. You won't get your entitlements until you get that part on the front end. And then once those are done before your preliminary plat is filed, because I can't put a plat together showing streets. And lots, if I can't show where the water is going to go and how it's going to drain and the elevation of the buildings and et cetera. And so all of those things go into everything that it takes to get you your construction docks and included in the construction docks are the things that show that this thing won't flood your detention ponds, your, your topo surveys and all of those things. So are all supporting documents for this final blueprint for a permit to build this dynamic structure that we want.
0: Okay. Welcome to another episode of Affordable Housing and Real Estate Investing. Today, I got my mentor, one of the all-stars from a couple episodes back on Affordable Housing and Real Estate Investing, my mentor, Alvin Hope Johnson. Alvin, welcome back to the show, man. I am so glad to have you back on the show, but more importantly, welcome you as a a guest co-host on this podcast because I've learned a tremendous amount of of information and knowledge and wisdom from you and i just can't wait to share this with all of our audience today man what's new with you what's going on well Kent,
1: man thank you for having me back on your show you're a mentor of mine um you know that that has to be a symbiotic relationship for it to work if i can't gain from you then you can't gain from me so uh our relationship has been great i'm just super excited to to do this with you uh we've done a lot of talking over the last few months and I think we've shared a lot of great information. You you pushed me to write a book. You know what I mean? So a <laughs> mentor makes you do some things that you never thought you'd do. And
0: uh, I'm just so ex- excited to be here. So let's do it. Oh, man, I can't wait. So a- Alvin and I, we're going to be doing a sort of a developer series where our audience can come on and learn a bunch of different topics within the development world because there's really not that much content out there or education out there on how do you become a developer. And Alvin and I, we started a company called Springboard RA, a consulting company where our goal is to help developers remove that fear out of the process of becoming a developer so that none of you feel like you're on an island by yourself. We are here to answer all these questions and hold your hands through the process if need be. But this is how Alvin and I and Peggy and Arrow and everybody on the team, including Larry and Darren, we want to help All of you guys become affordable housing investors and ultimately get to our goal of 20,000 units together. Uh, Maybe let's introduce Springboard RA really quick, Alvin. Like, what was the genesis behind you starting Springboard RA? Can you just give the listeners a little bit of context around that? Sure, Kent. Um, You know, for the past 12 or 13
1: years, we've been um, working exclusively for Hope Housing Foundation. Hope Housing Foundation is a 501c3 nonprofit that's dedicated to providing safe, decent, sanitary housing to the economically challenged and the workforce communities of America. And But that left us kind of in a pigeonhole because we were employees only for this organization did not allow us to help anybody else uh, do what they wanted to do unless they became partners with a Hope Housing Foundation entity. So speaking with our attorneys over the last few years about this, how we could uh, consult for other individuals, the thought process that they gave us was to come and start our own consulting firm to where that consulting firm would not only consult for Hope Housing Foundation, but we could do it for other people as well. So now Hope doesn't have any paid employees. Um, I'm president by appointment of the board, and I think Peggy's still an officer, and we've got a secretary by appointment of the board, but no salaries paid out. Now we all work for the consulting company, and all of our income comes from the work we actually do. So it makes the nonprofit a lot more efficient. Um, It also keeps everybody honest because, you know, some people can get really comfortable by having a cush cush job, and, you know, you got salaries coming in, and uh, we don't have to worry about it. Well, now, You know, you flip the script and now we literally, which we had to anyway, because we didn't take any donations at Hope Housing, not saying that we weren't eligible. We just didn't seek donations. Um, So we literally had to eat what we killed. And so this gives us a better way to to help more people. As you said, our goal was 20,000 units. And after we all put our heads together, you and me and A.J. and Ariel and Larry and Peggy and all of us, we realized that the easiest way to get to those 20,000 units was to empower and educate other people so that they can get their units. And then we come alongside them and we get to count that in our bucket. But also we, like you said, take the fear away from everybody else and provide them with some surety of closing and surety of execution. So we're super
0: excited about that, man. I, and I think this is why I really want to bring you on to the podcast. This this is so timely, especially with we have we have so many people reaching out to us right now because they're hearing about what we're doing and they also want to be a part of it. And their number one question is like, well, how do I help? How do I find the deals? What looks like a deal? But you know what? Let's just start on a more basic level first and just go through some of the terminology. So today, what Alvin and I are going to do is we just help the client. We are going to be engaging a civil engineering firm. That is gonna help us do a lot of the due diligence work in one assessing the feasibility of a project, but then looking at all the different third-party reports. So, what we're gonna to do today is we have a list, a punch list of items that we're gonna go through from environmental studies to plat, all these vocabulary that you might have never heard before in a single family side, but you're gonna hear about it today from us. And Alvin's gonna show us and tell us what are these different reports. And if he has a story or two on what Our investors or clients can potentially expect during this phase or some issues that might come up because hey we learn from our mistakes we learn more from (laughs) mistakes than, than our successes but this allows you to prepare and again not be scared right if we tell you hey this is a problem that we ran into during this part of the the phase of the development uh project then now all of a sudden you're less afraid because now you've heard how alvin and the team have overcome those issues that's really why we're doing this all today so, without further ado, the first thing we're going to talk about is the environmental site assessment. Sometimes you might hear this as the phase one ESA. Ivan, what is the environmental site assessment? And do you have any sort of stories or issues that have come up during these environmental studies?
1: Phase one um, environmental assessment, can't basically, it's real simple. Um, the engineering firm goes out to do the soil samples. And what they're looking for are contaminants within the soil. So if you've had an old gas station, you're buying an old site, you didn't know a gas station used to be there. Uh, It's a great example because we've got a lot of that across the country. Um, And they go out there and scoop some soil from 2 feet, 10 feet, 20 feet, and they find all of these contaminants in the soil. The phase one is just an indication that, hey, there's something here that has some kind of chemical makeup or something there that maybe should not be here. And so this phase one is not all clear. Um, We need to do more studies on that. So that phase one environmental is really just a high level view of what the soil contaminants are or are not in this particular space. So uh, phase one is always done when we acquire a track of land or when we're looking to acquire a track of land That's one of the initial reports that we pull just again to make sure that we're not buying any contaminated soil. Now, in the event that that soil comes up where there's uh, a trigger or there is something that some contaminant found there to be that shouldn't be there, then we engage the same firm for phase two, which is a deeper dive into that environmental report to really figure out what contaminants are in the soil How much of them are exist, and what would be the the remedy or the remediation to remove those?
0: Now, Alvin, you're not a soil expert. I'm assuming. I'm assuming you don't know everything what to do with these soils. But it seems like there are experts, right, that we are engaging on behalf of our clients or for our own projects that can address some of these issues, right? If there are any sort of these these contaminants, right? Have you ever run into any of those issues and how often, I guess is a better question, how often are you pulling out of a deal because of those contaminants? Do you wait until the phase two or, or do you just simply consult like, hey, this seems like a big mess. We're not. It's probably not worth pursuing further. What are your thoughts there? Well,
1: we've never pulled out of a deal because of it. We actually are developing on an old gas station site right now as we speak in Kokomo, Wisconsin. So not only are we providing... 185 units of workforce housing to this community, but we're also cleaning up an old contaminated gas station site. And so, when I found out that the site was hot, meaning it had some contaminants, the phase two was engaged. And they told me this before we got involved, but I didn't know what to expect. Then I found out that yes, this can be cleaned up. Yes, there are all kinds of things that the engineering firms do. Uh, to clean this up, they remediate the soil. They move it out. They bring in clean soil, uh, and they do that until all the dirty sample or dirty soil is is out. They literally wrap it up in kind of like big plastic bags and take it to a landfill that's only for contaminated dirt. And then it's backfilled with fresh, clean dirt and all that. And just depending on the level of contamination determines how far they have to dig, how wide they ha- how wide they have to dig. And so, Ken, I guess to answer your question, I've never had to back out. What would be an indicator for someone pulling out of a site like that once the contaminants are found would probably be the level of contamination in the site? Uh, Is it widespread where it goes from not just this one little lot we're buying? Does it go throughout the neighborhood or does it go from here down 300 feet into the surface of the well water that we all drink out of? Or is it just contained within this? You know, this half of half of a lot down 30, 40, 50 feet because we had a leaky storage tank here from a gas station. Right. So I really think the point of no return is predetermined by the level of the contaminants on the site and the cost to remediate those.
0: Got it. I think that was a great explanation, Alvin, because now, folks, just because you find something doesn't mean it's not fixable but it's really going to come down to what the cost associated with that remedy or that fix might look like but now that alvin has walked you through what that process might look like from literally removing the dirt and bringing fresh dirt that's what it takes uh but it's not like there isn't a solution for something like that so the next item is as we're talking about contaminants is the asbestos containing materials survey which sometimes stands for acm for short uh, I know I've done some single-family inspections where they look for asbestos or some signs of asbestos in a wall, and a floor, in a water heater. What does that apply to when it comes to development or, or a multifamily deal, Alvin?
1: Well, uh, great question. Uh, in an existing multifamily deal, Kent, uh, if it was built be- before 1980, you've probably got some level of asbestos in it. In older deals, they would take this black stuff that looked like tar and put it on the back of the mirror and stick the mirror to the wall. That mastic had asbestos in it. A lot of the floor tiles were made with asbestos, and if it wasn't the floor tiles, then it could have been the same black tar that they used to put on behind that mirror was used to stick those tiles down. That has asbestos in it. So I think during the 80s, we we had a run with Chinese drywall Uh, here that came to the states a lot of that drywall was highly contaminated with asbestos so when we're taking these asbestos samples uh, in an existing property we're looking for the level at which that exists we know if it was built in the 70s we know we have it but if we don't have to disturb it then we don't have to remediate it but if we're talking about removing all of these floor tiles then that's a different thing because you've got to get into uh, asbestos abatement which can cost. I don't even want to get into the cost. It's it's crazy. Um, do we have to pull the mirrors off of the wall? You know, any of that. So it's really the level at which our renovations are going to take place. If we're buying an existing asset to work, to know if we have to worry about this asbestos material on site here, when we're talking about in a new development, the same thing is true with that dirt. Um, the dirt could have been not contaminated because if it was a gas station But what if you had a hole in the ground and some guy went out there and buried a whole lot of sheetrock or buried a whole lot of other things like that floor tile or something like that that had uh, asbestos in it? Then you don't know it until you get five feet down and you start digging up. And now this asbestos has, yeah, he dumped it here. But over the last 25 years, it has spread throughout the site. How far down is it? Where is it? Has it gotten down? Has that asbestos washed, you know, the rain and everything? Has it corroded or or broken it down to where it's further contaminated the soil other than just this little spot where it started? So those things like that are all picked up from those surveys, either through the phase one, phase two or the asbestos uh, study as well. So none of that's a graveyard situation, Kent, if we find asbestos either on the ground or an existing asset but it just furthers our due diligence process so that we know how deep this goes as to how much money we
0: want to put in or have to put in in order to correct the situation. Yeah. So it sounds like there's a theme developing already, right? For auto listeners that are picking up, usually you do some sort of due diligence and then all of a sudden you find out about something and now you're like, Hey, maybe I need to go a a little bit deeper, really figure out what's going on both figuratively and literally right. <laughs> and just try to figure out what the cost associated with that might look like. So that's amazing. Um, the next item is the geotechnical report. Sometimes people call it geotech report. What is the geotechnical report, Alvin, and any sort of issues that our clients or investors should be aware of when they're running across this?
1: We've got a really big problem with clay uh, or a lot of our earth or soil is made up of clay. So that clay dries out when it's dry and it expands when it's wet and dries and expands, which causes all kind of foundation issues. You know, they engineer our buildings to where the the foundations can move one, two, three inches. Now, that's weird that you'd have a building engineered to move like that, but that's because our soil is so expansive and it does that. So what this geotechnical report does is that the engineers come out, They go down 5 feet, 10 feet, 15 feet, 20 feet, 30 feet and take throughout the site and find out what this dirt contains, what the soil is made up of and how expansive or non-expansive the clay is in this area. And then based on those reports that they get, they let us know that, well, in order for this to support a foundation, if we were in the swampland of Florida or New Orleans, They would tell us what that looked like uh, or that this land was not buildable because it's like quicksand or it is buildable, but you're going to have to stabilize it with X materials. You may have to build it up so many feet in order for drainage and all this stuff to work. But that geotechnical report gives us a specific makeup of the soil that we're going to build on, what it would take to stabilize that soil to be able to support the foundations in which we're going to build, and if necessary, we like we do quite a bit here in Texas because it's so dry, um, how do we moisture condition that soil because of the clay to keep it moist, to keep it wet so that this soil doesn't dry out and it gives the flexibility of the buildings to move without actually breaking the foundations in pieces. And so in Florida, it's a little bit different because they're not building on clay, Uh, A lot of that is kind of almost like sand and it's really wet. It's different soil there. And so we've got different geotechnical reports that are done there and different ways to stabilize that could be with lime, could be with all different kind of things to dry the soil out, to stabilize it. But it's all in an effort to support the foundations for the things in which we want to construct.
0: Great explanation, because. I was thinking like in California, right? There's earthquake risk and you always need to make sure in California that there is enough movement that's allowed when the ground shakes. I love that you brought up quicksand and wetlands in Florida because we're getting a lot of deals sent to us from Florida, but are these sort of deal breakers? Obviously, quicksand, I don't know how you would even build on that, but (laughs) any sort of deal breakers there, right? That makes a lot of sense. Don't build on quicksand. Yeah.
1: Uh, I don't know of any deal breakers yet. Ken. We hadn't seen any, right? Because yeah. that geotechnical report doesn't just tell us what's
0: there. It gives us a remedy for the situation that we have. So mm, That's a great point. That's a great point. I love that it gives you a remedy at the same time. So you're not just like, okay, now what? Because we're not oil, yeah. uh, soil or environmental engineers by any means. So All I right. think that's a great great explanation for the next item on the list we have the alta or which stands for the american land title association or the national society of professional servers nsps survey i'm assuming this has to do something with the parcel of land or attractive land that we're buying and developing on what typically happens during the survey alvin and what kind of issues might come up during this during this part of the process
1: that's a great question uh the, the ALTA survey basically is a survey that is done to those standards of the American Land Survey Institute. Um, you can get a survey that does not have the ALTA certifications. Uh, that just means it wasn't done to those standards. But basically what a survey does is it gives you your boundaries of your land. So, you know, we all think we got a 5,000 square foot lot. It's a rectangular uh, piece of property. And that survey, they will have survey pins, literal pieces of metal, probably a couple of feet that they drive down into the earth so that every time a survey is done, the surveyor will come out with a little metal detector. He'll have his ear things on and they can see where that pin is. and And then they typically put a flag there because that is your boundary line. And they'll do that on all the points of your boundary to identify your land. And then they'll go back to their computer and they'll take and they'll measure from point to point, point to point. They'll draw you whatever your your perimeter lines are. Man, my neighbor built this fence five feet over here. some of his. You know, that's that's some easy stuff. But of course, it can get very, very more technical than that when you have uh, easements and boundary lines that are encroached by electrical lines and all that stuff. So it's very, very important to really understand the scope of what you have. Your, your concept or your boundary lines for your particular property. And then more importantly, uh, if you've got a mortgage on this or you have liens on this, your lien holders require this because they want to know where the boundary lines are and that nobody else is encroaching on their asset, which could lower the value of their asset. Um, and believe it or not, you probably don't want to take, if you're over the property line onto somebody else's property and you quasi are trying to inherit it, today, but what if somebody comes and trips and falls on that little piece of land tomorrow because there was a rock there and now you thought you're going to take five feet of land? I mean, it's just all kinds of things that could go wrong with not adhering to your boundaries. I think that even goes true in life. You know, if you get outside of the box that
0: you're supposed to be in, you can get <laughs> in real trouble. <laughs> That's exactly right. But I think you brought up the best point. It's like, you do need to know where the boundaries are because there are setback requirements by the city, by the county, right. by the state. Uh, you need to understand where the easements are, are are going for the utilities. And if you don't know where the beginning point yeah. is and you don't know how, like for example, how wide the sidewalk needs to be, right? It's simple things like that, but you got to get it right from the beginning. So you don't in, impose your development on someone else's property, which could open yourself up to a lot of legal issues, if not financial issues at the same time. So... Make sure you get the survey done correctly. Um, That's correct. The next one is the topographic <laughs> survey, or sometimes you call it a topo. I've seen you, you I've heard you talk, call this before. What is a topographic survey, and what is it, and what kind of issues might come up during this part of the process?
1: Great question. A topo survey or a topographical survey actually takes a survey of the highs and lows of the land, where the altar survey gives us the boundary lines the topo, a topographical survey basically gives us the ups and downs of the land. So you wonder how you can drive through a parking lot at a grocery store and the parking lot goes up and down and you see drains and you see all of this stuff and you think, why did they just not make this flat and all of that great stuff? Well, all of that is by design for drainage, uh, for preservation of the land, And all of those different grades of that parking lot, all of the different grades of the street that we drive on that have hills, uh, you look at a house and it's up on this deal and then they've got a a lower level. All of that's done with a topographical survey and it gives you the different high, again, the different levels of of the land. When we're doing this in a development uh, concept, the topo survey really helps with the drainage uh, the cut and fill, it tells us how much dirt we have to move from over here because it's five feet higher, and we can bring it over here because it's three foot low, um, and it really is just a guide of, down to the millimeter of what the height and low of this needs to be in order for, like I said, mainly drainage because water runoff and, and those kind of things, and, and you really can't design any type of development without a tow survey. Now, you may say, well, I didn't, I've didn't. i never heard of that before because when I bought my house, all I had was a square and it was a, it was a survey. Well, that's because you're looking at that one track of land. But the developer that developed that subdivision, that put in those streets, that put in your lot, um, he had a topo survey. And that's why you maybe look at your lot and it's one level, but your neighbor is, you know, five houses down and their house is on a different level. Or you may have retaining walls around the back of your yard because on the other side of that retaining wall, it falls off five feet. All of that was done with a topo survey. And so, therefore, they can literally establish the boundaries of your lot with those retaining walls. Because if the retaining walls weren't there, that thing probably had a slope to it that that you couldn't build on. So now we know that it's five foot here and it's 10 feet lower here. We can build up these retaining walls. We can backfill that. And now we have either created some lots or created a situation for drainage or whatever our purpose is. But all of that is determined by the highs and lows of that topo survey telling us that, you know, from a baseline. And I think that baseline Kent uh, is typically established from a point of drainage, maybe for a sewer manhole cover or something like that, because everything has to be above that. In some, when you're above sea level, I don't. I'm not going to speak for New Orleans, but when that happens, then there's a baseline, and then it's either above it or below it, above it or below it, and so that helps with the cut and fill and the drainage and all those things. But the topo survey basically gives us the height um, of the development or of the land um, above, below sea level, or above our baseline.
0: Got it. And does the slope of the land play? A role in this topo survey where they are informing you about, hey, you're on a mountain or you're on a hill. I live on a hill myself and I know that yep. all the houses are on different levels on this hill. Yes. What is going on there from like a slope perspective? Because is this the part where people can figure out, hey, is it gonna get uh is it gonna become really expensive now to build affordable housing in like a mountain town or something like that? Right. That is what I imagine this topo survey is also covering. Does it cover that? part of the project as well alvin it
1: will you'll look at a topo survey kent and you'll see some little wavy lines on it and it'll have the elevation and then you'll look at the next wavy line and it'll have the elevation there and so between those wavy lines if i'm 750 feet then i'm 746 so i've lost four feet in elevation in just that point point. and so the all throughout that survey um you'll have those little wavy lines on it and it'll give you the foot at which the elevation is, which that's a really great way. So when we're talking about the highs and lows, yes, and you'll see on a hillside, you'll see that thing stepped all the way down to to the bottom of the development, right? So with the elevations all the way up, and then it'll allow you, because you may have a big jump between those wavy lines, like, oh, but it's only four feet between those big wavy lines, and if you're out in California like you are, you might say, well, these This topo, we've got a lot of variance, but it's spread way out, so it may not cost us near as much to do that because we're not losing 20 feet in four feet, right? We're losing four feet over 20 feet,
0: so that's a big difference. Right, and you need... You need a level surface. Doesn't matter where you build, you, you need a good amount of surface to be leveled. And that could right. come from you, some kind of demo just to kind of keep things flat so you can actually build on this stuff. So great, great explanation there, Alvin. The next one we got is what I was a little surprised when I saw this one, but I didn't know there was a specific survey called the tree survey. I'm assuming this is self-explanatory, but why does this matter? Um, maybe you have a project that you had to do a tree survey for. Why does it matter? And what do people need to look out for?
1: Well, we've had to do tree surveys on all of these just to get started and Ken, I guess it's for our own good because you literally can't, we can't allow people to go in and just bulldoze all the trees because then we wouldn't have adequate oxygen and all those great things. So in this tree survey, when we're looking at it for development, um, someone literally comes out and maybe counts the trees or see what kind of trees are on the site. We include that with our development package to the city, and then when we're putting in or submitting for a plat review, or we've taken this land, we've gotten all of our studies, we've got this piece of land carved up in individual lots for homes, or you know we're going to build an apartment complex here, and we've got six buildings, they want to know that on that plan, how many trees are we planting, what kind are they are, and most of the time they have standards minimum trees are specific kinds of trees for different regions of the country that they want to see and all the way down to the flowers before we even can go purchase a piece of wood because i'm sure there are probably some areas where we've got some protected types of trees that they don't want cut down right it would be um very short-sighted of us to allow people to go in and just cut down trees because they want to build a building and we you know the Think about the tree that was over in Hawaii that just burned in a wildfire, A 150-year-old tree that Mm. was just so expansive. But if we weren't having tree surveys done uh, on these developments, we could have lost some trees like that here in the country or here in the stateside. Or who knows? Somebody may have bulldozed that tree uh, uh, 50 years ago because it was a beautiful site where that tree existed. But because that tree was there and we take those tree surveys to protect some of those things, they may have had to go do something different. So, as you said, it's rather self-explanatory, but the reasoning behind sometimes is not always understood and it's pretty profound when you look at it.
0: Yeah, I completely agree. I know in California, some areas you need permits to cut down a tree. And if you aren't aware yeah. of this stuff up front, especially for newer developers, you could be opening yourself up to fines before you even get the project started because you didn't take that into consideration. You don't want to have to go backwards and update your plans, quote-unquote, just to accommodate the trees. It's, it seems so <laughs> elementary, but you really want to take care of this part of the process before you get into it any further because it's part of environmental studies or when you engage your civil engineering firm, they're going to look at, hey, are there any sort of endangered species that are living on the land that you're trying to develop it Similar sure. sort of analogy towards the trees. You don't want to cut down, especially trees that have historical significance uh, in an area that... That really cares about it. So the next part is, and Alan, let me know if we should combine this because we got the plan development exhibits and also the preliminary site planning and engineering stuff, which includes the site plan, the water, wastewater, and storm drainage layout, layout the civil project development schedule. I'm I think what I want to make sure the listeners understand is how do I know I quote unquote have a complete set of exhibits? Because if they're doing this for the first time, they're like, well. I'm looking at this for the first time. I don't even know what might be missing from it if I'm looking at it from the first time. So any sort of thoughts on where, how you want to explain what the PD exhibits are and what people should expect?
1: Well, the planned development exhibits, which basically tells the city everything that's going to be involved in this development. Our Princeton deal was put in hundred acre track, about a hundred acres of farmland. And the city is not just going to let you build on this hundred acres just because you bought it. What they're going to do is they're going to make sure that this development that you want to put on this hundred acres complies with city standards. So that plan unit development requires you to say, okay, we want to have um, 400 units of apartments. We've got 285 houses back here. We're going to put in 80 townhomes and then we've got a 15 acre track for a small box retail on a corner. Okay, that sounds great. Uh, But then the plan unit development goes into the width of the streets, the width of the sidewalks, the size of the lots, how big the lots are, what the setbacks are for the homes within this community. You think, oh, it's my hundred acres. I can do whatever I want. No, you can't because it's within the city limits of this particular city or they're going to annex it. So, you know, there's a thing called the ETJ, Kent, and I'm not sure what that ETJ uh, means, but if it's not actually in the city, It may be in the extended place right outside of the city limits. And so a lot of times here in our region, if it's not within the city limits, you do not have to comply with the city requirements for putting in a subdivision like that. But then if it's that far outside of the city, you probably don't have city utilities. So if you're doing that and you want to get water, say, from I'm building in in princeton we don't have water there but we're outside of the city limits of princeton but we're going to need to get that water and sewer services then they'll say well we're going to annex you into the city but in order to do that you're setting up this 100 acres it needs to be a plan unit development and within it these are the requirements for the city that we have uh because we're going to provide you water trash and sewer service and all of those things that go with the city In exchange for that, you have to have your streets this wide, your setbacks this wide, this, that, like that. And so it really just gives all the parameters for which the city requires this development to comply with in order to receive the services of the city. I hope I said that in a way that works.
0: Yeah, I absolutely do think so, because at the end of the day, from a conceptual framework perspective, you have to understand what your city and county's specific stipulations are for developments and once you get those stipulations in place what you're going to do is make sure that you have your engineering your architects to be on the same page and truly understand am i meeting all of the specifications that the city and county wants from the development and based off of that you want to make sure it's almost like a punch list. I I want to simplify as like, it's almost like a checklist. You have to comply with everything, especially if they are annexing you into the territory, um, especially if you're ETAJ, like extraterritorial jurisdiction, that, has to allow you if you want access to utilities, which is really important, right? Everybody needs water. Everyone needs electricity. If you want that benefit for your citizens and your residents of the development, you have to comply with it and make sure that you are following the checklist when you apply for any sort of the planning and zoning, uh, items there. So amazing. The, the only one I want to dive a little bit deeper on is Alvin water, wastewater and storm drainage layout. Um, this seems very complex Is this stuff that you have to get your engineering architects involved right away? And you need to hammer it out with like a plumber or like a commercial plumber uh, during this part of the process for the discussion? Because it seems very technical, right? For newer folks that don't really know, hey, how do I, when it rains, what do I do with all this water to make sure it doesn't flood, et cetera? Who do you need to get involved during this part of the process, Alvin, for the the water, wastewater, and storm drainage design?
1: Actually, our our engineer does that. So after we okay. get all of our geotechnical reports uh, from that company, our civil engineer um, takes the wastewater, water, storm drainage layout, along with the topo surveys and all of that. And they figure out what to do with that water when it rains mm. for the runoff. So they are the ones that are involved in the very beginning of this that help us make sure that these things stay or that they are designed to where to, you know you're not building a flood, you're not in a flood zone, but you built you know you stacked all the thing up to where it's gonna flood your building anyway. Uh, they're the ones that help us with that. So it's nothing that I need to know about, nothing that you need to know about. We just need mm. to know who to call. And so when they're designing this for us, that's what it's all about. They are the ones that are um, taking account of of all of those topos and the, the elevations and. Uh, Mm -hmm. looking at the buildings and how high the buildings are and not just the buildings, but what happens uh, half a mile down the road, right, Uh, when this water runs off of our site because now what used to be dirt or farmland, now we have put in a whole lot of blacktop or concrete that doesn't Mm -hmm. absorb into the ground anymore, which causes more excessive runoff. So a lot of times they're requiring us to put in detention ponds which hold that water to a certain level before it runs off into the sewers of the city or into the into the uh, ditches or underground of the city. Because, again, you've got 20 acres of grass today and then you're going to turn 20 acres of grass into 20 acres of concrete or 19 acres of concrete. You're going to leave a little green space. Mm -hmm. What happens with all that water? And you're at the top of a hill. Well, it's going to hurt
0: somebody <laughs> So that's, that's going to the bottom of the hill that's right you're going to the bottom uh, of the
1: hill so you'll technically probably have a det- detention pond on site that holds so much of that runoff and you'll look inside that detention pond and the pipes to drain out of the detention pond are not at the bottom you know they're up here so that thing could hold a certain level of water before it actually runs off into the city runoff
0: and so that's how a lot of that's determined and again, this is super important because as you get into all the things we talked about for the topo survey, the detention pond, you need space on your development for those parts of the development. Because if you all of a sudden thought you going to build a thousand units, but now that you understood where the detention pond needs to go and now you understood like with auto surveys, where your boundaries are, now the thousand apartment unit complex that you might be developing might become 900 or 950. And that's why you really got to figure out and update and be flexible and nimble in your underwriting to accommodate these new findings as they kind of come around. So the next item is we have That's the great. preliminary plat and the final plat. Plat let's let's just define plat for the folks first Alvin and then help us understand like how much difference or how much does the plat change from the preliminary plat to the final plat. Oh, it could change so much. So
1: typically, Kent, what you'll see is on a plat, it looks like a survey. You know, you got a one-house survey and you see a square. Well, that plat, if you're looking at a plat of a subdivision, it could have all the it will have all the houses, all the streets, and everything on it. All the wine, everything. If you're looking at a plat of a multifamily site, Then what you're going to see is you're going to see all of the trees. You're going to see all of the parking lots. You're going to see all the buildings. It's all on one track of land, all within that survey. But it's going to show you everything that's on that building or on that site. So how many times can it change before it's finally approved? Oh, my God, it could change thousands of times. But before you get started on that, we hire professionals that understand what the city requires on those plats how many trees we require what how much green space do we require um what uh how many units per acre can we put on this uh you think oh i got 100 acres i can put 10,000 units well maybe in some cities maybe they'll let you do that some cities you can't build more than 10 units per acre 20 units per acre just depending on that particular city's requirements or
0: setbacks for for um, for that you understand Yep, I do. And then I think I'm assuming the preliminary plat gets you to a point of let me see if I can follow the phase. Does a preliminary plat get you to the point of entitlements or do you need the final plat to get your entitlements?
1: Great question. Preliminary plat typically gets you to the point of entitlements. Most of the time, the way the cities are doing now is they won't file that final plat until all of the construction of the development is done. They give you a preliminary plat. They stamp it and say, okay, you follow this plat. You come back Mm -hmm. when the work is done and we'll, we'll file it for approval and then it's done. And so that final is not done until basically your certificate of occupancy.
0: Got it. Got it. I think that's super, super helpful distinction so that people understand where in the process can they expect each of these items? Yeah. Um, The next one. uh, So we covered a preliminary plat and a final plat. Obviously tons of changes can happen. Just, Once you get into development, things pop up. It's just the nature of the beast. And we have the next part of this, which is the site engineering construction documents, which includes like the dimensional control plan, the paving plan, the grading plan, erosion control plan, the drainage area map that we talked about earlier, the water plan. Where does this come up for the site engineering construction? Is this right when they are about to get the building permits to start construction? Where does this kind of fall?
1: So, the dimensional control plan, paving plan, grading plan. Your grading plan comes from your your topo, uh, mm-hmm. you know, because it tells you to cut and fill, drainage area map, water plan. All of those come in on the beginning of the planning process for for this before your preliminary plat is filed. So, all ocean control plan, grading plan, paving plan, all of those. For those go into it before your preliminary plat is put together or as it's being compiled. All of that has to be a part of it because I can't put a plat together showing streets and lots and houses if I can't show where the water is going to go and how it's going to drain and the elevation of the buildings and et cetera, if that makes sense. So all of those things go into everything that it takes to get you your construction docs and included in the construction docs are the things that show that this thing won't flood your detention ponds, your, your topo surveys and all of those things. So are all supporting documents for this final blueprint for a permit to build this dynamic
0: structure that we want. Got it. And I think for the folks that, I want to make sure I'm super clarifying this, right? You have your preliminary plat that allows you to get your entitlements, which is your permission from the government to build X number of units. And then you have to get your blueprints, which is all these engineering construction docs, so that you can to get your building permit to actually start construction. Once that's all done, then it gets to the final plat. Did I get that correct, Alvin? Anything you would yeah, adjust or tweak?
1: I would. I would just the civil engineering part with your grading plan, erosion plan, and all those things. That part is part of your, you won't get your entitlements until you get that part on the front end. And then once those are done, they are consolidated into your construction docs
0: as well. Got it. Thanks for clarifying that. I think that yeah. was super, super helpful. Um, and then finally, I think these might be a little repetitive, but let's go through them anyway. So we, what is a drainage report? It, is it any different than what we already talked about earlier about the storm drainage layout? What is the difference there? a drainage report
1: i hadn't seen any difference in that uh because it's usually tied in with the drainage area map and the water plan which the plan's already there the drainage area map is is probably compiled by the city or county officials in your region and so that drainage report is a report that the engineers will pull for us to show that the things that they're doing uh with this detention pond and the drainage and the amount of water runoff that we're going to have complies with the water plan of your municipality.
0: Got it. No, that's super helpful because I think when we hear different terminologies, we almost think they're separate things, but sometimes they just might be lumped into the same thing. Uh, The last I want to talk about is the stormwater pollution prevention plan. So we talked about drainage, stormwater. What is the pollution prevention plan? Is there some sort of like filters we've got to put in place here? Like what do people need to look out for?
1: Well, you'll notice just around any construction site where they're moving dirt, you'll see a two-foot, three-foot barrier around the site. This material is it's not plastic. It's not paper. But what it is, it's, it's a material that allows water to flow through it, but it does not allow the dirt from this particular site to wash off into the drainages. So it's really a stormwater pollution prevention plan that allows or it prevents all the runoff from your construction site to contaminate the stormwater systems that that carry our water. Which, because if that happened, you know, you could build up so much mud in the stormwater sewer that nothing will wash away because it's all piled up with mud. So they there's a prevention
0: plan for that, and this is part of what does that. Got it. Very very timely, especially if we've heard about Burning Man and how everybody got stuck at that festival. Exactly. All the mud, yeah. uh, mud is hard to solve for. So the next item is uh, permitting. Um, I think permitting is just like a very very big part of the process where you have to engage multiple par- parties and make sure like, hey, depending on your municipality or county, who do you need to talk to? Do you need to submit things together or separate? Any sort of advice you just have for new developers here about the whole permitting process like what what should they do or be mindful of to prevent any issues with permitting is it just communication alvin what do you think most of it can't is communication but a lot of
1: this is not i don't want to frighten anybody but and i'm i consider myself a professional at this but but the expert level of which to know all of these things is not probably for the average person that says, Oh, I want to build an apartment complex. You don't need to know all of this. Somebody on your team needs to know that all of this stuff exists so that you know who to hire. But you know, when I'm when I'm laying in my bed dreaming about owning apartments at night, I'm not thinking about the stormwater prevention plan. i don't need to you know what i mean it's just we just know that i don't even know that i have to have it i just know that if somebody gives me permission to build it and i have to get permits then whoever is responsible for pulling my permits has followed all paths to get me to the place
0: of being able to pull that permit that is so beautifully said alvin because it's this is a perfect example of who, not how. It's You don't need to read every single building code in the world to become a developer. Similarly, that's why you would team up with someone like Alvin, myself, and the team Great. at Springboard RA because we, we have gone through the trenches of building our Rolodex from builders, architects, engineers, investors, even sometimes. And we're not saying we're the experts in every single piece of the process, but we know people now. And sometimes that is the most labor-intensive part of... A development project. It's how do you build out a team of all-stars to come on your team and play for the team because that's how the dream team was created. You needed all-stars at every single position, not just one guy like Alvin that knows a little about everything. It's like we have engaged all the experts. we build great no. relationships with them. And that's really the benefit of us, of everybody working with us. It's like, we're going to open up a Rolodex of folks that are professionals, that are experts that will help you address these issues so that, again, you don't have to be scared. We're just talking about like 15, 16 different things about stormwater. I don't want to know about the stormwater detention <laughs> right. or pollution prevention plan either. <laughs> um, all right. Alvin, this has been a really, really fun conversation. I know I learned a lot because it's always easy to google something, but to hear from someone like you who has been through the trenches and gone through those issues associated with each part of these reports that's been really helpful man I, and i I'm just really excited about this next part of the journey in life uh, with you and a team Alvin, where we know we're gonna help so many people do so much good and again the development world wasn't a a world that was easily accessible to many people and we are now trying to make that accessible and make a lot of dreams come true and in turn we're going to help so so many people live in beautiful homes and this is what's really cool about this yeah no i'm just super
1: excited that we get to do this together and uh you know seven people team man we can do we're doing so much already right now and um I just don't know what to say, man. It's getting it's getting really, really exciting to, to as we do more of these podcasts and do more of these com- conversations with potential investors and people that want to partner with us, it opens up so much more inside of us, right? Because as we talk about it, the better we get as well. And then we get off the phone and then we have somebody calling us saying, hey, you need to do this, 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 and this. It's like... Oh, man, Kent just talked about that. So it's pretty cool. So, <laughs>
0: <laughs> I literally had a, another uh, prospective client call me the other day and said, Hey, what you and Alvin cover in just the last podcast has been worth millions and millions of dollars, if not multi-millions of dollars, tens, hundreds of millions of dollars. Because that's the knowledge that you have been so gracious to share with the world, where typically, again, a lot of people keep this information closed up. And we're just out here trying to share with the world, being open, helping people realize their dreams. And I think this is what life is about. It's like when everybody wins, like we'll naturally win together with them and, This is so fun. Like I I can't, I can't tell folks that are listening right now, like how fun this is for us. If you have any sort of questions that you have for Alvin and myself, make sure you leave a comment in the YouTube video. If you're watching it there, uh, please make sure you subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, leave a five-star review and share this with other folks. Because sometimes we, we get one-star review from people that are politically motivated against affordable housing because they just don't understand it. Right. But that's Okay. Alvin and I are not creators. We're out here just to share what affordable housing really means and what the difference it can make for a lot of people out there. So we're excited. Uh, please reach out to us on Instagram. I uh, can find me at Invest with Kent he, where can people find out more about you, Alvin,
1: Alvin Hope Johnson on all socials, uh, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, Alvin Hope Johnson, or hopehousingfoundation.org. That's our And then we've got springboardra.com. So there's so many ways, but like Dion say, I ain't hard to find.
0: (laughs) 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 All right. Hey, this has been fun. And make sure you guys tune in. Um, We're going to be starting doing this at least every one or two weeks where we go through a developer series and we talk about a specific topic. But more importantly, we're just going to talk about what Alvin and I and the team are working on so that you can understand, hey, what what does the life of a developer actually look like? Sometimes it's not all all fun and games it's like we're solving problems every single week we're trying to mo- work on the needle movers every single week and by that we have to help folks and please make sure you leave a comment and we are out thank you everybody for your time